This is a work of fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents either are products of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously. Any resemblance to actual events or locales or persons, living or dead, is entirely coincidental. Oh, so I hear. <laughs> My ghosts and goblin friends. My name is Elliot. And my name is Patrick. And this is Ghostlight. A podcast dedicated to reveling in the paranormal, the weird, and most importantly, the spooky in the everyday lives of the artists, administrators, and patrons of the theater. Now in this time when the goings-on in the theater world are mostly on pause, we're glad you're joining us for a walk down the spooky side of the backstage area. Uh, I would like to say that one thing will always be true, no matter what's going on in the world. And Patrick, I know you know this. Uh, don't touch the props that aren't yours. Yes. Unless you would like to be cursed. Absolutely. I can tell you about the time that I accidentally touched the prop of Annie Potts when she was going on stage in Steel Magnolias at the Alliance Theater, and I found myself waking up the next morning, not in my bed, but on the set of Designing Women in 1988. That's the story. That's the whole story. (laughs) Elliot, I don't know why you're laughing. That was very traumatic. No, I completely understand. I apologize for my insensitivity. Uh... Well, that's the kind of of mayhem and mischief you can expect with the Ghost Light podcast. We have a couple of submitted stories that came to us via Dreamscape. Uh, We put out feelers to call for theater artists to send us telepathic ghost stories, spooky stories. So, without any further ado, let's hop right into our first submitted spooky theater story. Let's do it. Elliot, do you want to give us some context for what we're about to hear? Oh, sure. You know, it's the funny thing about the theater. Anytime you walk into any theater anywhere, you can kind of get the feeling of the performances that have happened, the people who have inhabited that space before you got there. There's something kind of eerie about it. The ghosts of the performances past, of the audience members past, the feet that have walked across the boards before you even got there, before you were even born in some cases. Uh, It's not all that different from graveyards. That uh, spooky staple, a place that houses uh, many, many literal ghosts and literal dead people, which hopefully are not in the theaters themselves. But I would double check underneath the trap door for anyone who is listening. You never know what skeletons are actually inside your closet. (laughs) So our first story does take us to a literal cemetery uh, using the framework of a story about the theater. So this is an anonymous submission called Ghosts of Marietta. I hope this is relevant to your call for creepy theater stories. I'd like to remain anonymous, but for context, I'll tell you a bit about myself. I'm an actor, and I've called Atlanta my home my whole life. I've never been a very superstitious person, but between having an active imagination and going on plenty of summertime ghost tours in Savannah, I know that, despite my best intentions, I can sometimes get caught up in the supernatural. 
A few years ago, I was in a community theater production of the musical Parade, which tells the real-life story of the 1913 murder of Mary Fagan, a 13-year-old girl, and the lynching of Leo Frank, a Jewish New Yorker who was living in Atlanta at the time. Everything about the story is brutally sad. The murder itself, the media frenzy around the trial, the blatant anti-Semitism in painting Frank as the murderer. The production was being staged at the historic Strand Theater in Marietta Square. Right down the road is the Marietta City Cemetery, where Mary Fagan is buried. During the act break of our final dress rehearsal, one of my castmates, we'll call her Natalie for the purposes of the story, had the idea that we should visit Mary Fagan's grave after rehearsal. We can go pay our respects, she said. Let her know that she lives on in our memory. Maybe it'll bring good luck to the show. I had no interest, and I wasn't shy about telling her. I don't care to get involved in cemeteries at any time of day, I said, but it'll be close to midnight when we get out of rehearsal. That just feels like a bad idea. Natalie was insistent, though. I just have this feeling that the show won't be good if we don't at least try and connect with one of the spirits involved. I remained unconvinced. Unfortunately, one of my friends, we'll call him Robert, had a huge crush on Natalie and was really into the idea. We also carpooled together. Bad luck. We had planned to go straight from the theater to the cemetery, which was technically closed to the public after a certain time. Natalie had managed to rope in her own carpool friends, Julia and Tiffany. Now, I don't know which part made me queasier, the fact that we were trying to break into a closed graveyard or the fact that our group was growing. Three people can be manageable. Five is a liability. Rehearsal ended around 11.30 p.m. As we stepped into the chilly November nighttime air, we split into our two groups. I don't know if you know, but parking in Marietta Square is a nightmare, so Robert and I had to walk a bit before we got to his car. I wasn't trying very hard to hide my foul mood, but Robert did his damnedest to cheer me up. Come on, dude, it'll be fun! Think of what a great story this'll be! I'm pretty sure I rolled my eyes, although I have to hand it to him. He was right. (laughs) If I had gone straight home and gotten into bed like a sensible person, I wouldn't be writing the story. We arrived at the cemetery before the girls did, around 11.38. The lack of streetlights made the big, empty parking lot look especially ominous. Robert's old-ass car didn't have a working heater, so we sat shivering in the dark, waiting. 11.45. Still waiting. No sign of Natalie's car. This is so fucking creepy, Robert laughed. No shit, I shot back. Do you want to text them, or should I? I'll do it, don't worry about it, he said. 11.50. Still waiting. No new texts. Robert had started playing some music on his phone so we could have something to distract us. Okay, he said. Welcome to the Black Parade by My Chemical Romance is 5 minutes and 11 seconds long. Surely they'll be here by then. 11.56. The song had ended. Still no sign of the girls. No texts. No phone calls. Nothing. This is dumb, I said. I'll try calling them. Natalie didn't pick up. Neither did Tiffany. Julia's phone went straight to voicemail. I kind of hate this, I said, forcing a laugh. I feel like they're pranking us. We should probably just go. No, we can't do that. What if something happened to them? I started to object when my phone's sudden buzzing stole our attention. Is that them? Robert asked. Ugh, no, I whined. It's my stupid daily Shakespeare quote. It's officially midnight. Oh, Robert said, sounding a bit more disheartened than he probably meant to. Is it a good quote, at least? I tapped my phone screen to check. (laughs) Fuck, I said, laughing at the irony. Julius Caesar. Cowards die many times before their deaths. Oh my god, Robert laughed before, uh, finishing the line. 
The valiant never taste of death but once. <laughs> we both laughed, the first moment of levity either of us had shared since leaving the theater. Well, I'm not valiant, and I've never pretended to be, I said. I'm happy to die a few more times if it means I can go to bed. Robert was still laughing a bit when he said, okay, we should probably go. But let's try calling them again, just to be safe. Now, right on cue, we were blinded by the headlights of another car entering the lot, parking in the spot directly next to ours. It was too dark to make out who was driving, but I think I actually let out a sigh of relief when I saw Natalie and Tiffany hop out to greet us. What happened to Julia? I said, rolling down the window. Oh, shit, did you not get our texts? Natalie replied. She bailed because her phone died. We took her home. I was about to make some quip about how she had the right idea, but Robert met her news with, Aw, well, she'll be missing out. This is going to be so cool. And creepy, Tiffany added. It's been a hot minute since I went sneaking around a graveyard at night, but I'm not going to lie. I'm pumped. Robert and I got out of the car to follow Natalie into the cemetery. The chirping of his car locking behind us made me jump a foot in the air. I fucking swear, Robert, I hissed. He laughed while Tiffany shushed us from the front of the group. A friendly reminder that what we're doing is technically illegal, she whispered. So let's try not to get caught, yeah? It feels a little disingenuous to call what we did breaking in, since the gate was open wide enough where all of us could easily walk through. The cemetery security is seriously lacking. That, or something, was inviting us in. Natalie had looked up where Mary Fagan's grave was before we finished Act 2, so she was leading the way. The grave, still regularly adorned with flowers and children's toys, is a pretty decent walk from the entrance. We had at least 15 minutes of walking ahead of us. Since I was bringing up the rear, I let my mind wander a bit. I got to thinking about the show and our rehearsal process. Our assistant director had gotten us all invested in the historical context of the story. For a few weeks, we had been completely submerged in both the text of the play, as well as extra materials about the trial, the general culture of anti-Semitism and anti-Black racism in the South, and Leo Frank's legacy in Atlanta in both the Jewish and the Gentile community in the almost a hundred years since the lynching. Like I said, I've never been very superstitious, but walking through a pitch-black graveyard after midnight and thinking through all these grim details... I couldn't help but get caught in the anxiety of it all. Here we were, four dumb 20-somethings who had been living exclusively in the world of Atlanta's horrific recent past. I got this dark, gnawing feeling that we weren't just tempting something. We might be opening ourselves up to some kind of malevolent supernatural force. And then I heard a scream. Unfortunately, that's all the time I have to write this portion of the story, but if it isn't completely inappropriate for your podcast, let me know and I'll send in the rest. Now we'll be going to a different story. Um, The subject line for this one is the Scottish play. Hey guys, I was really intrigued by your call on social media to submit funny stories about working in the theater. This may not be funny in the haha or LOL sense, but I figured I'd send it your way anyway, in case it's in line with what you're looking for. For context, anyone who is even remotely acquainted with the theater, you know that the people who make it are an extremely superstitious lot, myself included. Avoiding the phrase good luck before an actor is set to perform is a common courtesy. You're meant to wish that they break a leg instead. Um, This tradition has reportedly been traced back to the personal correspondence of American theater artists of the early 1920s, who likely picked up the phrase from Jewish immigrants after the First World War, since it's a rough translation of an old Yiddish saying. If you wish an actor good luck before a performance, it supposedly brings them bad luck. 
It seems crazy if you say it out loud, but hey, you know, it's tradition. I've been a stage performer for practically my whole life. I became enamored by the warmth of footlights when I was a child. Before I ever set foot on the stage, though, I would climb into the back of my dad's pickup truck and invent stories off the top of my head to tell the neighborhood kids. There would be blood and glamour and twists and turns, and it was, well, it was probably all gibberish, but my audience was enthralled. And so was I. It felt like I was casting a spell on them. It was the most powerful I had ever felt in my very short life. Naturally, I wanted to feel that way all the time. So my parents, recognizing the burgeoning melodramatics of a born thespian, brought me to the community playhouse so that I could audition. It was after that I started performing there that I first learned about the curse of the so-called Scottish play. Now, you may know that as Shakespeare's Macbeth because you're normal and don't have a cult-like slavish devotion to the traditions and superstitions of a bunch of light-adverse neurotics who have dedicated themselves to playing pretend all their lives. If I sound resentful, it's only because I am. Now, there's a lot of rumors about why the text of the Scottish play is cursed, but nothing has been confirmed. One legend says that in the original production, the actor who was set to portray Lady Macbeth died during the first run of the show, leaving William Shakespeare himself to fill the role as the understudy. Another legend says that Shakespeare included actual incantations for the witches to recite at the beginning of the play. My favorite rumor, however, involves the specter of capitalism. The play is just stupid expensive to produce, so theaters go bankrupt trying to. Whatever the reason is, It's considered bad luck to say the name Milkbeth in a non-rehearsal or performance setting while you're inside a theater. If you must reference it, you are supposed to say the Scottish play. If you slip up and say Macbeth anyway, tradition tells us that you are supposed to immediately leave the auditorium, turn around three times, spit over your left shoulder, curse, and then knock to be let back in. This way, you ward off the evil set upon your troop and break the spell you unwittingly cast while you are on stage. If you miss even one step, you're liable to, I don't know, cause a gas line in the boiler room to leak so that when your director tries to light a cigarette after the stage manager calls a 10, your performance catches fire. Literally. Boom. I've only made this mistake once. I was working at a large playhouse in Savannah that had a golden glittery marquee and a framed proscenium, and it was sculpted to look like a broke statuary. Uh, Most performers will tell you that many of the stages we get hired to work on are as luxurious as a carnival outhouse. So when our company first arrived at this theater, I gleefully waltzed up and down the aisles, running my hands over the plush red velvet seats and marveling at the triploid mural exalted over our heads. I would have floated into those clouds and become a chubby little cherub had I not been brought down to earth by my friend Trishel. Max, get a grip, she said. She was the assistant stage manager, and she already had her headset on, so the mic was floating in front of her mouth and trembling with every word she spoke. I need you in costume, like, now? Yes, ma'am, I said. Thank you, ma'am. Anything for you, ma'am. Call me ma'am one more time, 
she sneered. Her eyes were slits beneath her additional-style bangs. I felt the red-hot iron of her gaze burst through me like a laser. Sorry, <laughs> I muttered before running up the stairs and through the off-stage door into the wings. In my way was another one of my castmates, an elderly actress whose real name was Marty, but she insisted, for some reason, that we call her Vanessa. She was already in costume and at places for the top of the show. I managed to stop before I plowed directly into her, but she didn't even flinch. Instead, she had her eyes trained and focused on the bricked wall before her, which was painted black, and it held the rigging for our scenery. Maximilian, darling, can you make out what's written on the wall there? Vanessa said, her fingernail clicking against the brick. I've been trying to read it, but I left my glasses in the dressing room, and I'm just terribly farsighted. You could try taking several steps back and squinting, I said, hoping she'd move just enough so that I could squeeze past her. She, however, hit me with an open palm. You're not on until act two, and they have me puttering around on stage before the show starts. Help me. I sighed and leaned forward. The message had been scratched in the paint with what looked like a fingernail, or as sharper than your average prop knife. Fair is foul, and foul is fair. Hover through the fog and filthy air. So you say, thus court your death. For with this rhyme you speak Macbeth. I lean back. Clever? Vanessa's hand was not known to be steady, but it began to quiver violently as she gasped and brought it over her mouth. <gasps> what a trick, she said. Max, be a dear and... Sorry, <laughs> I whispered. I've got to go get dressed. Trishel is going to straight up murder me. Vanessa started to chase after me, but the bustle underneath her skirt caught between two large crates, rendering her helpless and stuck. Just make sure you turn around three times. I gave her a thumbs up as I retreated into the backstage hall. Got it, I called back. I made a show of turning around three times, spitting over my shoulder, and mouthing, fuck, to the heavens. She looked distressed, but I didn't think anything of it as I scampered to my dressing room to change. I mean, we hired stagehands for the express purpose of freeing old ladies from their antiquated underwire. I mean, they have to earn a paycheck. The thing was, though, after I put on my pantaloons and powdered wig, I didn't hear a call for places on the cod mic. I, I didn't hear the harried footsteps of the other cast and crew as they rushed to their first scene. In fact, through the closed dressing room door, I heard, well, nothing. Not a sound. The thrum of our ensemble was usually the background static of my first act routine. The insulation, I thought, was phenomenally well installed. I texted Trishel several minutes later. Technical difficulties? I asked. My phone vibrated in my hand seconds later. Where the hell are you? It said. I texted back, dressing room. Trishel asked, the women's? Uh, no, I said. The bathroom? Question mark. Um, I'm not sitting on a toilet, dot, 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 that I'm aware of. Which dressing room? She replied. Mine, I said. Which one? She clarified. 
I said, the one that has my name on it? We just checked. You're not there. I scoffed and texted back, the door's unlocked. You can come in. Just knock. We did, she said. I wrinkled my brow. Did you think to open the door? Door's open. There's no one here. I cackled and took a picture of myself in the mirror, throwing up a peace sign in my powdered wig. My shadow cast along the wall from the lights framing the mirror. I can't imagine you'd miss this bad boy if it was right in front of you. Wonders never cease. She texted back, 9-S-J-D-I-F-N-3-R-N-I- U F A L S K D W J E two three nine And then a voice memo Thinking it was Trishel cursing me to Helen back after a key smash of rage, I sighed and hit play. It was mired in feedback and static, but through the noise, I could just make out the voice of a young girl reciting these words over and over. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. And then from behind me came a Single knock on the door. It was a reflex. Come in, I said. The dressing room door swung open, and there was Trichelle. She was smiling. Knock, knock, she said. Very funny, I hit back. I thought I had slipped through an interdimensional portal again. She kept grinning and said nothing. It wasn't that funny, you know. Are we at places? Knock, knock, she replied. There was something amiss about her expression, I thought. She reserved grins for dogs and children who made their interests on cue. She's not known for her mirth. Will you stop smiling? It's freaking me out, I said. She did not stop smiling. She stood just behind the doorframe, her eyes trained on me, and, if I'm not mistaken, she was purring? Or maybe it was growling. The frequency was so low that it didn't feel real. It felt like a hallucination of sorts. A deadly silence reverberating in my ears that I realized was my heart beating. And as I stared back at Trishel, I watched her face remain unchanging and still and smiling so wide that the corners of her mouth reached her ears and it opened. It opened like a ravine. And every time she inhaled, I felt an insatiable pull from deep within her as if the source of gravity was inside. And it was beckoning me to submit. And my fingertips were bristling with static. The pins and needles poking me relentlessly and endlessly and eternally as I looked deep into the blackness inside and found it 
empty. And a peace washed over me as I thought, wouldn't it be nice to just not exist? To be an absence of thought? A lack of consciousness? Absolutely nothing at all? And I closed my eyes and drew closer to the darkness, and the static of my fingertips was the only sensation that kept my soul tied to my body. It kept me from being consumed inside an all-encompassing unreality. It kept me anchored to the door as I heaved my corporal weight behind it and let go. The door slammed. I fell backwards onto the floor. I, I caught myself with my hands, which suddenly held no static. There was no electric current at all. I stood up shaking. I thought, there's no way. It can't be. I knocked on the door. Immediately, it flew open and there was Trichelle, Fuhrer emanating behind her as the crew jostled each other to get a better view of my imminent demise. The vein in her forehead was large enough to burst. What the fuck, Max, she whispered in a tone so low and red that I suffered from second degree burns. Where the fuck were you hiding? You're about to miss your cue. And she pulled me by the arm out into the hall. As I was being dragged to places, Trichelle pledging to force her foot so far up my ass after the show was over that she could use me as a bedtime slipper, I made contact with Vanessa. We were backstage, and the house was crowded, and the actors were in the middle of their scene, so she could only mouth the words. But I understood. Never forget to knock. Anyway, that's all for now. Thanks again for putting the call out in the dreamscape. I can't wait to hear what kind of mischief everyone else has been getting into. XOXO Max. Max, I just wanted to say thank you for being so brave and so dumb as to not knock to be let back inside our dimension. Well, the hairs on the back of my neck are starting to stand up, which says to me that we can't be here for much longer. So I guess we should probably go find our way back to safety and back to our homes. Uh, Patrick, a pleasure as always. And a pleasure as always, Elliot. Thank you. And until next time, we'll meet you at the Ghost Light.